Welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. Today I'm talking with Chris Richardson. Chris is a software architect and serial entrepreneur. He is a Java champion, a Java one rockstar and the author of Pojos in Action. He was also the founder of the original Cloud Foundry, uh, an early Java pass for uh, Amazon EC2. And that's why we are here. Chris is the author of the book Microservices Patterns. And today we are talking about service templates and service chassis. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, well, thanks for inviting me. It's good to talk. Good. Um, did I forget to mention anything about you? No, no, thank you. <laughs> I know. I recovered. Yeah, I mean, the only thing, I guess the only thing I would add is that, you know, I sort of, my business is consulting and training. So I help companies adopt microservice architecture. And um, so if companies need help, please reach out to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so um, service templates, service chassis, they are the solution. But um, yeah, what, what is actually the problem? B before we dive into the solution, so what, what, what is the problem they are trying to solve? You know, it's really funny you should ask that because I was just looking at microservices.io and I realized that when I wrote the pattern there, I actually didn't define the problem. <laughs> <laughs> So, which is like really awkward, right? Because every, I mean, the whole point of a patent is that it's a solution to a problem. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess sort of you, in one, one way of thinking about the problem is, well, how do you enable a developer to quickly start the development of a new service? Yeah, that's that's sort of fundamentally the issue you're trying to solve. I mean, in reality, you could say there's bigger things like, oh, we got to set up the GitHub repository. Uh, we've got to set up the deployment pipeline. So there are there are some additional things. But you know, when it comes to writing actual code, right? Your your job as a business as a developer is basically, I want to write some business logic, right? I want to just put, you know implement a business capability. But in order to do that, you've got to like create a project with all of the code and, you know, which, you know, then there's numerous things, right? Just like set configuring all of the Gradle dependencies. That's one thing, right? Which in itself is a non-trivial problem, right? Like getting, assembling a consistent set of Java dependencies that actually work together. <laughs> seems to be a really hard problem these days, right? Um, you've also got to configure Gradle appropriately to, you know, to set up all of the appropriate tasks, right? Then there's configuring the frameworks that you're using, um, you know, and setting up like data source connections and, and so on. So admittedly, something like Spring Boot with its auto configuration takes care of a bunch of that, and that's a good start, but usually you need a lot more than that. Um, and then, you know, there's just sort of, in a microservice architecture, there's a whole bunch of cross-cutting concerns that you typically need to implement you know, whether that's say, okay, I've got a service with a REST API, I have to um, implement security, 
require all API access to be authenticated with a JWT, for example, right? I mean, that could be a standard for, for your application architecture. Implement observability, right? Which is basic stuff like a health check, but you know, also include things like distributed tracing, um, persistence, logging, all of that basic stuff. And then finally, once you've got all that in place, you can start writing some business logic. Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, uh, two days ago, I had this kind of uh, onboarding with a, with a new team. And, you know, everything you said, and uh, and then I was like, oh, you know, and we also, you know, we use uh, Argo CD for GitOps. Do you know that, you know? Um, and you have to do that to deploy to a sandbox. And then you have to do license scanning and security analysis, dynamic and static, and all those kind of things. And everyone was like, okay, oh, my head is exploding. I just want to deploy in Hello World. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, like, yeah, and just actually getting, you know, it's just getting a set of Java dependencies and the right versions that work together is, is that, that, that can be a deeply frustrating experience, right? Um, you know, and then things like, you know, we had the log4j problem, right? And that requires a dependency upgrade, right? You got to upgrade to a new version of log4j which then sort of actually could trigger an upgrade of Spring Boot, which then actually the new version of Spring Boot requires a new version of Gradle, right? Because it's like the Spring Boot plugin has version as dependencies on the Gradle version. So, you know, sounds simple, but it, it's there's just a bunch of work involved, right? Yeah. Um, so, but, yeah. Do you also consider, so do you consider the, the problem, let's say, related to um, everything which, which is in the deployment artifact? Or are you also looking at, you know, maybe I need a performance tests and I, I need to understand how I write those performance tests for my service. Or if I want to connect to a database, uh, where, you know, if, if I have microservices, I probably get my secrets from a secret store. So how do I get those out of a secret store? And, you know, ev a, a, there is a lot of code, which is not really part of the deployment unit, but more of deployment pipeline or maybe even other artifacts like like tests oh yeah I, i guess all of the above right um so it's you know in a sense what you need to create is a a, a git repository um that contains sort of everything needed and that for example could um could actually configure the deployment pipeline right like um I mean, you know, for instance, I use Circle CI. So there, or you know, there's a dot Circle CI directory that configures the pipeline, or a GitHub Actions um, directory, right? So on and so forth. So it's all of that stuff, um, including tests, right? The um, test support classes, um, testing strategies, um, and there can even sort of be architectural um, concerns like. Okay, as an organizational standard, we're going to use the hexagonal architecture, right? Mm. So, 
um, <clears throat> you know, so a simplistic project, it would just be, you know, source main Java, right? Whereas a more elaborate project, it would be a multi multi-module Gradle pro or Maven project where you've got a domain directory, right? That's the core business logic. Then you have you have modules for each of the adapter class adapters like web messaging, database access, and so on. Um, so even just setting up that kind of consistent structure and tying that back in with the build logic is another thing that you have to do, right? Um, and just to go hello world, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, in in the let's say in the monolith days we had to do the same but we just did it once right and then it was done it was just done we could start uh, but in a microservice world if yeah we do it for one service what is what is with the next and the next and the next service yeah. right so that's so the, like yeah so that yeah with the monolith obviously you just have one deployable unit right so you could say one repo whereas the microservice architecture you've got multiple deployable units and yeah i mean one obvious thing to do which i guess i did in the monolithic world perhaps was i want to start something new i just copy paste from an existing project right um so you can do that but you know sort of that kind of copy paste um plus um just gratuitous differences between services based on the say the whim of the developer at that particular point in time just creates a lot of inconsistencies and there's a lot of work right so one one solution to this problem is the service template pattern and that's basically you could say it's a hello world service um or, or a, a a repository containing a hello world service that you can just clone um, and immediately start um, developing your application your services business logic and it just takes care of everything it's got the build logic the deployment pipeline configuration configure uh, all of the code and the configuration for the cross-cutting concerns plus some sample application logic as well mm. So you, you can just hit the ground running, right? Yeah. So if, yeah, if I have to spin up a new service, it's, yeah, I don't have to, to, to spend days or weeks even to get all the things we mentioned in the beginning to get that running. I just, yeah, clone the repository and that's it. Yeah. So that actually, it sounds pretty cool, right? So I'm actually, I have to say, I'm a big uh, service template uh, fan. Yeah. Um, in every project, when I start a microservice project, I, I start with a service template. Um, but I also, I also run into problems with the service template because once I created it, um, it of course evolves. So I, I have my service, my hello world, and then I give it to it to team A and I give it to team B and I give it to team C. And then, you know, we are in the project for some time. 
Um, how do I, how can I avoid those kind of, uh, uh drifts that, um, I have my, you know, I, today I develop a version and in three months time, I know, oh, I, you know, I could have, could have done better with this, uh, service template. I have actually a few changes, which makes it easier to use and stuff like that. But it's, it's difficult to propagate all the changes to, to, to the, to, to all the, the people who already used it. Yeah. Yeah. So each, each time you start a new service, you're basically taking a point in time snapshot of your service template repository, um, which is likely to evolve over time. I mean, it could just simply be, oh, we're upgrading our set of dependencies, right? Like, oh, log4j emergency. Exactly. <laughs> right? then, example. Yeah. Look, that's great. You've updated your service template, but all of the instantiations of it are still running the old version. It doesn't help that. So, that, so there is this disconnect. Um, I mean, one possibility... Um, is that the serve the actual services are forks of the service template repo? So in theory, you could sort of do a git pull to refresh to 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 pull the latest version and update it that way. Um, I mean that so you could sort of leverage git in 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 order mm. to minimize the work, right? No. Um, so that's that's definitely one possibility, um, but you know if you take a step back and you, you can view the service template as glorified copy paste programming, right? And you know that, that's how how I do it. <laughs> yes, I know <laughs> glorified it's, copy paste. It's it's the way of googling. You know, doing a Google search can copy and pasting is how most development is done today, right? Um, but it's generally a bad thing, right? I mean, eventually you realize, oh, we should, you know, we shouldn't keep copy pasting the same thing. Instead, we should create an abstraction, right? Um, and so the idea then is that then leads to this microservice chassis pattern. So that is a framework that contains sort of most ideally, most of the build logic, most of the code and implement and configuration of the cross-cutting concerns, um, and that and the service template is is a much smaller hello world application that just um, depends upon the framework um, and depends literally in the sort of grade gradle maven sense of the word, right? So, so your service template is this small thing. Then when you instantiate it, um, your services are referencing a particular version of the microservice chassis. Um, so then that means that ideally a chain, you know, you want you make a change to the chassis. You then simply have to bump the version that in each of the services, right? You know, one line change. And those services just automatic then will then just get the new version. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing would, would you recommend doing that already from the beginning on 
when we are still a little bit unsure how you know those um, libraries uh, should look like you know, maybe, maybe in my first version <coughs> i you know the, the first version is not perfectly well yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm i could argue it both ways i'm sort of on the one hand you you know you should only you say you shouldn't design frameworks up front they should really evolve from kind of your experience right mm, like mm. You know, actually from 30 years ago there was sort of this rule like you should basically write three applications and then then actually create a framework that abstracts out yeah. the commonalities right yeah, yeah. um so so yeah so you want to be careful with big upfront design and then things that make me really nervous is sometimes i talk with organizations where it's like yeah we're going to build this framework and we're going to build tooling around it and they haven't even implemented any services yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, number one, you should actually have services working, right? And then, but then very quickly, you should be aware of the copy paste sort of issue. And then, you know, be prepared to quickly iterate on this frame, on this chassis concept. Mm, uh, mm, okay. Um, you just don't want to over-engineer um, any of this stuff, right? Yeah, and exactly. then, you know, there's a tendency in organizations to, to yeah, we create a platform team that does all this fancy stuff, but that's sort of doing it backwards, right? You know, minimum viable platform concepts, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. So the the... Yeah, I would just start with good old copy paste and let's see to get something working, get some experience, have a few services trying it out. And at some point when we feel, okay, now we learned enough, we could just start with uh, yeah, building, let's say, the framework or the libraries. Yeah, but you, you don't want to leave it too late, right? And, you know, that because that's... Otherwise, you're just creating a lot of technical debt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was it uh, Neil Ford or Rebecca Parsons saying uh, the last responsible moment or something? Th that is really hard to find, you know. <laughs> Usually, I'm always like, oops, it's I missed that last responsible yes. moment. Yeah. 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 And so now, okay, now we have our template. Um, uh, we spread it around uh, across the organization. A couple of teams adopted it. Uh, we got some feedback. Uh, so now we, um, we built uh, libraries and we have a nice uh, chassis. And now I just realized, okay, we have a new version of some library of our template or our, uh, uh, of, of the, let's say the, the, our hello world application. And I'm, I'm wondering how do I get, what should I do, uh, then? Because I know, uh, I know the Google problem, you know, Google, Google, uh, and I believe also the, the Dutch bank ING, they copied that approach. 
that they say, look, uh, currently you, you are using library XYZ yeah, in version 2.1 and we are going to deprecate it in six months or in three months. So you have to to update to a newer version in the next couple of months, right? Because after that, it won't be available uh, in, in our, um, let's say, artifactory, for example. Uh, I, I always found that quite uh, uh, hard yeah, to just say, if you don't update the library, <laughs> you know, nothing will work. Um, and also the complaints I hear is that teams are quite busy constantly updating uh, libraries uh, instead of implementing uh, business logic. Is, is, is that a correct observation or what, what, what would you recommend with updating those uh, libraries? Yeah. Um, it, I mean, I think there is this tension because yeah, I'm, I just want to work on my business logic. Right. But at the same time, there's, um, things keep changing, right? I mean, new versions of various libraries come out. Um, and then there's, there's, there's sort of cascading dependencies, right? As well. Um, I mean, like I was just, um, one issue I encountered the other day was, I think it was like, okay, I had a project that built with very, a Gradle project that built with various versions of Java. Of Java. But I hadn't tried it out with Gradle set with Java 17, right? And then when I tried it with Java 17, Gradle got this error, right? And then it turns out that, you know, you got to upgrade to some newer version of Gradle, <laughs> you know, and, and then that, but then I was using some old version and then I'd ignored the deprecation warnings about this feature that you're using, right? You know, like the, the way you define your dependencies. <laughs> so then I, then, okay, so you upgrade to a new version of Gradle, then you've got to go through and change all of your build.gradle files, right? Um, and, you know, and then, and then, so that was one scenario where upgrading Gradle um, to support a new version of the JVM, you know, created some issues. Another way is, as I mentioned earlier, you update Spring Boot. That has, you know, the Spring Boot plugin has dependencies on a particular version of Gradle or later. Um, so if you upgrade Spring Boot, then that up triggers an update of Gradle. So I'm my big takeaway from that is you kind of have to stay reasonably current, right? Because, you know, the mm -hmm. worst case scenario is, you know, in particular, like um, going back to this log4j fiasco, right? Um, you know, the easiest way to fix that in a Spring Boot application is just upgrade, uh, update to Spring Boot 2.6.2, right? And you need to do that quickly. Right, but then that relies on having a whole bunch of other dependencies that are including the Gradle version that are reasonably current. Um, so, so sadly, I think it's sort of a fact of life that you need to stay reasonably current. Um, 
just so that you can sort of react quickly to to mm. security fixes or anything, you know, and other things like that. So once again, one hopes that this microservice chassis framework can help, right? Because the chassis kind of defines in one place all of this sort of um, kind of all of the dependencies, including, say, the Gradle wrapper version, the Spring Boot version that you're using, and so on. So in order to upgrade to the latest and greatest, you just have to upgrade to the latest chassis. Hmm. Now, fingers crossed. Now, hopefully your service, I mean, one of the, well, I suppose one of the issues with a chassis is that if you're, you know, you could say it's an opinionated framework, right? So if the way what your service you know, if your service needs to do things that don't quite fit with the framework, then there's sort of a, there could be a potential mismatch. But yeah, but I'm just wondering because that happens quite often, and I'm just wondering wondering if that is you know how how big is that is that problem? So I I I stole that from uh, a German guy, a Christian Deger. Uh, he he once said, you know, we have we have this uh, principle uh, which we call follow the trail. You know, you we we have a, a service template, and the service template is kind of the trail which um, which goes through the jungle. So if you follow the trail, your life will be easy. But maybe in in some circumstances this trail is not for you and then you have to go through the jungle and then things become obviously very complicated for you because there is no trail in the jungle and you have to come up with a lot of things by yourself which like a chassis is already giving you and then you have to develop it um uh by yourself yeah and uh, but that's then your decision if that's just how it is yeah i mean maybe I mean, it's sort of hard to talk about in the abstract, but maybe the chassis is, is could be a sort of, I'm going to wave my hands and say modular, so that enables you to sort of reuse parts of it as much as possible for, mm -hmm. your, for your unique service. Yeah, I mean, that is, of course, then uh, ideal, right? So you just skip certain, let's say, uh, parts of it and um, yeah, and use them. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, one thing. So obviously, if we use a, a chassis, um, things are getting consistent, right? So I that's also something I like uh, with uh, with that approach is we have something like, let's say, governance as code, I would say. You know, if, if you start a project, you have to develop all those uh, uh, um, concepts, but concepts rely somewhere, you know, if, if they are written down, if they're documented, that's good. But it's better um, uh, if you also can show a code. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, what, what's your experience with that? So, is, is it should you should you see it as an let's say opinionated uh, guidance, um, which you can let's say 
take or leave or is it something where you say people should always follow that or the the the, the consultant answer it depends well you know i think in the context of say the microservice architecture right like in in order to be a production ready service um yeah you know, a service has to implement certain a certain set of attributes, right? Like um, API secured through a JWT, um, you know, so there's sort of the, and then logging or observability and, and so on, right? So there's sort of a set of rules that a service has to follow in order to be a good citizen within mm. or, or get within this application's you know, within this application and with inside your organization, right? No. Um, so yeah, so that that that's sort of, you know, that's a set of non-negotiable rules that can be written down. Um, and yeah, going back to your point about following the path through the jungle, right? You know, the the chassis is is really that path that you makes it easier to follow. Um, And generally, you should just follow it, right? But, you know, if you don't want to, well, you have to go read the list of rules <laughs> and implement them the hard way. Um, but, but you really should have, a, you know, a darn good reason for doing mm -hmm. something different. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, because on the one hand, I, you know, I think teams should be autonomous, but at the same time, they should not just go make gratuitous choices, right? I mean, every decision that you make should be defensible um, and sort of should at some level get buy-in from um, the rest of the, the other, well, the organization at some level, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I had an interesting discussion a couple of weeks ago uh, where people said, oh, you know, autonomy, Our goal is to have the highest autonomy uh, for for our teams, and I was like, no, I don't think so. Um, the because one team they basically built their own platform by themselves. So we we offer a platform, and they just said, ah, you know what, we are not interested in this Kubernetes stuff. We just do our own thing, you know, with the lambdas and all that. And um, I said, look. Autonomous teams are not the are not the goal. The goal is to be fast, right? And if you're totally autonomous and you do everything by yourself, you're not fast. So if you follow the trail, you are fast. So maybe you should follow the trail. Yeah. Well, the, the, there's. It's interesting. I feel like you need to achieve a balance. Um, between kind of conforming to the rules and and autonomy, right? Now, um, and one of the most interesting examples of this was um, a few years ago. I was at the was it um, DevOps Enterprise Summit, and there was a talk by some people at Target about how they managed their technology roadmap, right? You know like the list of technologies that you can use within your organization. Mm. Um, and this was, you know, like the traditional way of doing this is, yeah, you've got some, 
you know, big brained architects that you have to go and beg and plead. <laughs> and a year later, they're approved the use of some technology that everyone in everyone else has been using for, you know, three years. Right. <laughs> but, but with target, they had a really interesting scheme where, and it sort of leveraged GitHub actually. So the, the list of approved technologies was a GitHub repo. And you could submit a pull request saying, I want, you know, to actually change the list of approved technologies. And then that would trigger the usual PR review mechanism um, where the rest of the organization got to debate. You know, you actually had to debate debate the, the suggested thing, right? And so it was sort of consent consensus-based. Um, and you'd hope that people would be quite rational about this, right? And it was sort of interesting and the level of agreement needed depended upon the sort of the impact of the technology that you were adopting. So if you were proposing a new database, um, that probably went up to the CIO level. And I think they, you know, they re reviewed that monthly or quarterly, right? But if it was some random JavaScript framework, the other JavaScript developers could go, yeah, sure, right? And to me, that that was a great way of of sort of, you know, managing technology within your organization. Um, so it was very grassroots, bottom up driven, um, for the, for the most part. Because you, I mean, you can have problems. I mean, like one example, um, I. I was doing an architecture review for this client and their primary technology was JVM and maybe it was MySQL, right? That was their sort of technology stack. But one developer just decided to create a Rust Postgres based service just because, right? And it's kind of interesting, <laughs> but organizationally, it's like, what the heck? <laughs> You know, it, it, it's like you've incurred the organizational overhead of supporting yet another database type, which is, and you can debate the merits, but, you know, Postgres, MySQL, right? I mean, you, you pick one. You don't have both, mm. right? Mm. No. Um, and then you've picked a non-JVM language. Um, it's like, Why? Yeah, you you always find reasons, right? If if you want to try out a new technology, but um, yeah, it's only yeah. Does it really help the the client, right? It's probably it only helps uh, this developer interested in in Rust. Yeah. So whereas if you if that that company had applied, say the the target model, he would have mm -hmm. submitted a pull request and you know saying. I want to use Postgres, and the answer would probably have been no. I would <laughs> I would want to use Rust, and the answer would probably be no too, right? Unless there was some unique requirements, like super low latency couldn't incur the overhead of garbage collection, therefore Rust is okay, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas you know, you know, another more reasonable example would say, okay, I know we've been using Java, but hey, let's have a look at Kotlin, right? Because you do want to experiment with new technologies, but 
but but you know you want to have technology candidates that are sort of justifiable right and kotlin would be a you know something to experiment with and hopefully the rest of the organization would be oh yeah sure try it out um, so in the target model, who you said about a database, uh, some C-level person decides and uh, about JavaScript frameworks, um, is it, is it then the, the Java, the, the front end community or who, who decides what to adopt there? Yeah, some more or less something like that. I can't, can't remember yeah. the, the details. Yeah. But... Okay. But you could imagine that depending on, you know, the greater the impact of a particular technology, the, the more, the mm. higher up it needed to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I will look up the, the talk and also put it in the, in the show notes. Yeah. It's like target, do, target dojo technology governance, something like that. The DevOps enterprise summit. Okay. Cool. So I look it up. Um, yeah. One thing I was also struggling ever since with my, uh, service templates, actually I only did service templates, no chassis, um, was not adapting like a product management mindset. Uh, so I. You know, we, we developed it, we threw it, uh, to the, to the teams. Of course, we, we tried to collect some feedback, but now in hindsight, I think, so the documentation was pretty good. Um, but, um, yeah, I, now I have the feeling, uh, a little bit more product management, uh, would have been better all the time. So, uh, offering also let's say quote unquote professional services and establish some you know feedback cycle with the development teams and things like that um what do you think about uh, about that about this product management mindset is it is it necessary or if yes how much yeah yeah good question i i mean I, maybe it just depends the the degree of it but But, but yeah, it's this interesting thing where, yeah, I mean, in some ways it's a service template and chassis is sort of kind of non-trivial in, in, in many ways. And yes, it probably needs good documentation. It probably needs an uh, owner. Um, or, I mean, it would, I mean, maybe there's like across an organization, there's just like a community of practice of people who are, who from multiple teams who contribute to the chassis, but, um, as opposed to having a dedicated chassis team, I kind of feel like that's probably overkill. Right. But yeah. having a bunch of people who, who sort of have ownership of that, hmm. I think makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, either it could be, let's say part of a, the, the platform team, but maybe better is, uh, yeah, the, the, a couple of developers from each team who try to, to maintain it. 
Yeah. Well, it, it's just, I guess it just depends. Like how much, you know, is it, is it a full-time job? Probably not. Right. <laughs> no. I mean, but it's one of those periodic things, right. Where once again, going back to the log for J problem, you know, you would have been really busy. There's a lot of people who are well, probably still super busy dealing with that mess. Right. Um, but that, you know, so then, you know, then there's issues with balancing the needs of like feature development with the needs for chassis development. And certainly in some, this case, chassis development takes priority over everything else. Right. Hmm. Good. Um, yeah. Any, any dangers you see? when applying uh, service chassis? Well, may maybe the issue is it's more sort of an organizational thing where if it's really, and this is sort of generic issue with platforms, right? Where if it really is sort of a bottom-up approach where the chassis and the template evolve you know, it's very much driven by the needs of the team, right? I think that's a, that's a good thing. Whereas if, let's imagine you have the platform team that just over and there's a risk of over-engineering it mm -hmm. and imposing this overly complex solution on, on, on the development team, right? I mean, I feel like, yeah, once again, I mean, this is sort of a, platform anti-pattern right yeah, uh, yeah i would worry about that yeah i've seen that yeah true <clears throat> you see it and you think okay i'm not going to use it because it's too complex and uh yeah yeah and um, you know once again it's you know i feel like there's i think it, you know we tend to gravitate towards technology and towards you know platform stuff because it's kind of it's nice it's it's exciting and it's tangible whereas business rules and users oh those are messy nebulous things right um so yeah that that you know so it's so there is the risk of that but i mean we always need to remember that the focus is basically on you know in a sense it's implementing our domain logic right that's what we're And well, you could say the UI, the user experience, right? Those two things are what's important. And everything else is just sort of supporting stuff. <laughs> true, true. Remarkably, there's a lot of stuff just to, <laughs> you know, like the hexagonal architecture, right? The, all the stuff around your, you know, on the outside of your services is like, it's quite can be quite complicated even though it's fairly boring in, in yeah. relation to the actual business logic that you're implementing yeah um do you see any are there any uh, criteria um from let's say an organizational size when i should start to think about it i mean i could imagine if we are 10 people in the project and we just write a couple of services we just we are just good to go with copy paste or something but if we are 150 people or 500 people it's 
probably better to to adopt uh, this approach? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of. I mean, in many ways, the the organizational size kind of ties back to whether you should be using micro microservice architecture or not, right? Like, for the most part, you know, the microservice architecture is when you have a team of teams developing services, right? Um, and yeah, I suppose you could say if you just got a handful of services, probably not. But once you get 10 or more and, you know, it starts this, the, the, the need just grows probably super linearly with the number of services you have. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. If you are, uh, what is it, the Monzo bank with, uh, 400 microservices, they probably have something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it, the service granularity is a super interesting issue. Like, my, I, I'm very much in favor of just having a service per team, right? Unless there's a really good reason for having more, right? And there's various motivations for having more, like, oh, we need to use a mixture of languages, right? Our fraud detection services, yeah, most of it's in Java, but then we've got the machine learning model executing in Python, right? Uh, two services there, right? One team. But what? It, but interestingly, what I've noticed is there's a really common, at, what I would argue, anti-pattern of having a service per developer. Um, <laughs> you talk to a team and it's like, you know, three people, well, let's say five people, Each one of them have their own service. And it's just, it's not, it's almost like the, the team is really itself a team of one person teams, right? You know, and each one's responsible. And I, you know, and a lot of that just comes from taking the service metaphor or concept just too far, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of things that should just be a library or module, right? Don't just automatically turn it into a service. Because you have a service template and chassis that makes it easy to spin up a new service. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, one service per developer is a super common anti-pattern I've just seen in numerous organizations. And then Monzo Bank, that that's even better, right? I mean, I think it's like, 10 so it's like is it 10, 10 services per developer <laughs> and i'm I sure know, but it's a lot of, they have a lot of services yeah um, yeah no i think at one point they had 150 people 1500 services right ah, okay and, even more okay okay yeah and i'm sure there's good reasons um so i don't want them yelling at me but I, it's not a model that I would recommend to a, an organization. Mm, yeah, just don't copy paste the solution if you don't have the same problem. No. Yes. Yeah. So I I have uh, one last uh, question, and um, yeah, I call it specific hazards. So um, Netflix. They just said we everything which is deployed on in our infrastructure has to run on a JVM. And the Monzo Bank says you have to use Go, for example. Um, but 
What about companies which just say, you know, you can use any technology you want, or you can use, let's say, you can use Java Go and JavaScript, and you can run your stuff on, you know, Elastic Kubernetes service and AWS, you can use, or you can use AWS Lambda. Is it still worth thinking about uh, um, service chassis um, if you need to support lots of languages or at least more than one language and or more than one platform? I, I think the short answer is yes, with, with, with the assumption that um, I guess sort of in a sense, you end up with needing to have multiple chassis, multiple templates, right? Mm. Yeah. For Java, for Golang, for, yeah, and then for sort of particular environments as well. Yeah, which uh, is a lot of extra work. And you yeah, well, I, well, I think I feel it. like for that, for that reason, um, I mean, there's, there's sort of a number of thoughts, right? Like, certainly when it comes to languages, I feel like you should um, sort of, you, you, well, you just in general want to make your technology choices in a very careful way, right? And you shouldn't have just sort of make kind of gratuitous, arbitrary decisions like, oh, I'm just going to use, like, you know, elixir for this just because i feel like it right <laughs> i mean it's fun but you know from a business point of view it it's not helpful right it's not a good approach plus it incurs it actually ends up incurring a lot of cost right because um yeah if you pick some unsupported language then you go back to the problem that the service template solves, right? Oh, we got to implement all this build logic, this cross-cutting concern stuff, so on and so forth, right? And that's a lot of overhead. So, I mean, you really need to make a sort of wise technology choices. And mm. most organizations do. I mean, I remember I have talked with companies that, for, I don't know, historical reasons, half the company was using Java and half of it was using Python to basically implement business level services. And that that just seemed like less than ideal. You really need to pick one. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and then like say Python, excellent choice for anything involving math and machine learning and, and that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. But to have you know your order management logic implemented in Python, and then your uh, delivery management logic implemented in Java. Why, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, the the thing is, or actually, to to me, it feels like one of the big sales of of microservices is you. Um, there is some sort of macro architecture, you know, that is everyone needs to follow that uh, macro architecture, but on the micro level in your service, certain things you're just free to choose. 
And yeah, people just say, okay, I, I just want to use the, the language I want to use, uh, you know, and if I want to use uh, white space or brain fuck, you know, why not? And uh, yeah, I mean, no, now extreme, yeah. of course, nobody is doing that, but um, let's say I want to. Oh, do no, no. Something that, that, someone, somewhere, someone is using that. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, in, in a purely technical sense, right? Provided the service is a good citizen within the within its, the application architecture, and provided it implements the necessary API, then everything else about it is a te is a technical detail that is encapsulated and free to change, and you could make gratuitous decisions, right? Mm. But on the other hand, yeah, <clears throat> from an organizational point of view. I mean, there's a, there's the, there's a there's sort of these non-technical issues like staffing, right? You know, um, I mean, like one one client I, I worked with a, a few years ago, they had a Scala stack, right? Um, and it was, you know, it worked well for them, except in the geography where they were based, they couldn't hire any Java any Scala developers. And the whole team <clears throat> was actually a bunch of expats from other countries, right? And that sounds great. You know, that kind of situation is great when you're small, but imagine you get a whole ton of VC and you want to rapidly scale up to hundreds of developers. Um, you can't manufacture 100 Scala developers if there are <laughs> none, right? And... So it doesn't even matter the technical merits of the technology, right? Like it doesn't matter that Scala supports monads and effects and other functional. I'm going to call call it mumbo jumbo, <laughs> <laughs> right? When you can't hire the people, right? Apologies to the functional programming community, um, but you know so. From an engineering, from an organizational point of view, using Java for all of its boring warts, right, and its lack of monads, functors, and God knows what else, that's a much better choice because you can go out and hire 100 Java developers and actually build product that you can sell. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's true. Right. Um, and that's a huge, you know, that, that's a huge concern. Or... You know, one te you know, one person knows one technology and they leave. You know, that's a problem for the organization, right? So, hmm. um, you know, or so, or like with your cert. I mean, another example, right, is you pick a certain kind of database from the API level makes no difference, right? The database is encapsulated, but from the operational perspective, right? You know the the ops team now have to manage that database, right? So it's not just the concern of the development team, it's now a concern of the platform team as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so there is. There are these broader issues that kind of constrain, you know, really constrain the technology choices that you can make. Yeah. 
yeah, it's something, uh, let's say some people don't want to hear, right? So, um, to, to yeah. constrain technology choices, but I, I agree. I mean, in, yeah, in one project I've been, um, it was not actually programming languages, but they said, oh, we have no environment, but we have all those teams developing their services, but they all do it in their own little sandbox, but there is no integration environment or no production yet. And, you know, everyone is to, is, is free to choose the deployment pipeline of their choice. And for me, it was like, no, you know, we have no, we have no time. We have to hurry up. We have to do this in two weeks. And if everyone is busy two weeks choosing an appropriate uh, technology for deploying, we are going nowhere. So we constrained now the choice to back in the days, GitLab CI. So everyone has to use it and that's, you know, it's fine. So then we, we are fast, but it was not really, yeah. What has been sold, let's say to the people that sold, sold was free technology choice. But it, yeah. I, I would say in a lot of cases, it makes no sense. You, without constraints, you're not going nowhere. All right, cool. So, um, yeah, my questions are answered, I have to say. Thank you very much. I go with, a, let's say, I start my, my day tomorrow with a fresh view on service templates. Actually, currently, I'm working on one. So... Um, have to overthink a couple of things uh, after we talked. Oh, good, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad this was useful. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, one, 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 one. Ship, another plug is I actually have a Manning Life project um, series, um, which is currently in beta, where. And the goal of the, the live project series is actually to first build a microservice template or a service template, and then la a later project actually refactors it into a chassis and a, so extracts the chassis out of the template. So hopefully that will be available from Manning soon. Okay. Okay, cool. And creating that was actually really thought-provoking. Um, just sort of, it's like, oh, gave me a lot of stuff to think about, which, you know, many of the, con a lot of the ideas, um, I brought up today kind of were crystallized by going through that exercise. Mm, okay. Okay. Cool. When, when do you expect it to be available? That's a good question. I don't know that the time frame. I mean, it, it, it's like, it's in beta right well like actually the beta might be finishing any day now actually okay okay um so so real soon cool cool so yeah i uh maybe maybe i asked next week or two weeks for a link or is that too too early yeah i don't know i don't know the publisher's process because this okay, is okay. um first time um creating a live project so it's okay. all yeah, you know, different workflow from creating a book. Yeah. 
All right, cool. So, um, yeah, I want to thank you. I want to thank uh, our listeners and um, Chris. Have a nice day. Yeah, thanks. You know, it's eight fifteen in the morning. The sun is shining, so pretty good. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. Thank you.